It's the third Thursday of the month, and we're off the bricks and on the air. You're listening to a poetry podcast from Brick Street Poetry. Penelope waits. Our marriage bed is occupied. I have taken a new lover since you entered the hospital so many months ago. A cruel pimp named Fear. He gives me no love, not warmth, nor pleasure. Night after night, he sells me to the lowest bidder. And there are many. Each morning, I am a wreck, spit upon dawn's shore. Luckless Scheherazade, I try to appease him with promises and sacrifice to no avail. I plead for mercy, forgiveness, but he does not know those words. He has his own laws and language. I have never felt so lost, so starless. The night weighs heavy and I wait. Tell your Argonauts I wait. Beloved Ulysses, I wait, standing on the lapping shore for a glimpse of your homecoming sails. Beautiful. Gabrielle Gleng is with us today from her home in Germany to share poetries triggered by the passing of her husband. Gleng is a bilingual German-American poet, screenwriter, artist, translator, and creative writing teacher. Her poems have been published in both German and English on both sides of the Atlantic, including in SCOP publications, and her work will soon be featured for a second time in the upcoming issue of Gargoyle, where she first published as a young poet fresh out of college. Returning listeners of the show will remember her as a collaborator for the international anthology of linked verse, Katina Poetica. In addition to her published successes, Glang has taught for nearly three decades and was a docent for creative writing in English at the University of Applied Scientists in Esslingen for 14 years. Gabrielle, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you and my deepest sympathies for the loss of your husband. Thank you. Now, that poem, listeners, that was just read was entitled Penelope Waits. And as we all likely know, Penelope is a character from Greek mythology. And Gabrielle, I was wondering, what value are you seeking to bring into the poem with this reference? Well, there's a couple of different things. I have written um, at least two other poems in the past where I am the character of Penelope. As you may recall, she had to maintain the kingdom while her husband Ulysses was out having his adventures on the high seas, going from island to island and um, having a wild and crazy life. That isn't to say that my husband had a wild and crazy life um, going on many business trips or anything, but um, the idea of this tenacity, this kind of endurance, waiting for the return of the beloved 
is what resonated with me in the story. And of course, you'll maybe hear in other poems that I'll be reading that my, my husband's illness was a very long, complicated thing. It went on for nine months and he was hospitalized almost the entire time. And so I was, I was actually doing the traveling back and forth between the home and the hospital to visit him and seeing that he was sort of in another world, in, on another planet or on, a, on an island, not really reachable for me. So I think that I was calling up those images of feeling desperation, feeling separation, feeling loss, anticipating his death, even though I didn't allow myself to express that in any way, sort of anticipative grief. And so it struck me that this character, Penelope, was mirroring my own emotions during that time. Mm. Very often on the program, we talk about how poetry is an outlet for a lot of strong emotions. I'm assuming your work is much the same. It, it helped you come to terms with your grief? Well, I think the coming to terms with grief is a long process. Um, so I, I wrote all during, I mean, of course, as a writer, that's how you express your, your emotions. Um, but I wrote poems all during the period of illness and, of course, after. And I always tried to find images or stories or narratives outside of my own life to help me understand and grasp that I'm, I'm part of a whole and my experiences are not unique. I think that uh, we probably have all experienced something like this, especially during the last two years. We've been in, in and out of lockdown since March 2020 here in Germany, and we're probably facing another lockdown. So there are universal emotions that we all have, and I'm trying to find my my specific images, my specific symbols, my specific that metaphors, and the more specific I think those images are and metaphors, the more people will be able to relate to them because they're describing universal experiences. Speaking of universal experiences or experiences that may not be universal actually the majority of our listeners are from the U.S. and we famously have not had the the benefit of the lockdowns from COVID. What difference do you think the difference between those two circumstances makes in terms of processing the grief of COVID? Do you think that it, it gives more time to think or does having fewer lockdown restrictions give you the benefit of forgetting about COVID, in, in your opinion? That's a really, really good question. Um, and I experienced both um, advantages and disadvantages or benefits and, and the downside while, of course, this experience was happening while my husband was in the hospital. It was uh, quite terrible not to be able to see him whenever I needed to or he needed to see me. Only one person in my family was allowed to see him for a certain period of time, actually the whole time. It was always only one person until um, the, the day that he died. Then the doctors allowed the three of us, I have two sons, to join us uh, to, to come to the hospital. So I had to stand in line. I had to wait. I had to have the thermometer 
test if I have a fever. I, I had to um, test myself regularly. So access was a real problem. And there was always the horrible thought, what if my husband dies all alone in the hospital? He was in the stem cell transplant station, which meant that they were not allowed to have any visitors um, except during visiting hours, except one at a time, except only between um, 30 and 60 minutes and not every day. So that was a great disadvantage because, of course, I couldn't see people. People couldn't come to me to my house to comfort me, you know, to bring over a pot of soup or, or whatever. So we were all kind of these islands floating around in our fear and grief. And then, as you correctly mentioned, being in this kind of cocoon of fear and anxiety and loneliness also provided the writer in me, the creative spirit, with the absolute stillness and calm and silence needed to create something. Now, of course, in a way that was torture, but in another way, it, it gave me a, a whole lot of space to really dig deep into my pain, into what I was experiencing. So it's kind of a two-edged sword. Yeah, it sounds like it. Let's move on now to the next poem, First Snow. First Snow. Complete silence. As if the forest were holding its breath. I follow the tracks in the snow. Stepping into footprints of those who came before me. Measuring my footprints against theirs. Nothing fits. My boots are too big too small, too wide, too narrow. The treads are different from the others. My gait is too long, too straight, too even, and faltering sometimes. In between meandering tracks of deer, fox, hare, bird, crisscrossing forest melodies, I leave my own tracks. They will have disappeared by tomorrow. I breathe in the purling air and exhale, calmed for now. Beautiful. Now, there's a bit of a jump from the first poem we read, Penelope Waits, to this one, First Snow. It goes from the impersonal to the personal, the archetypical to the interpersonal. You speak of my boots, my tracks. Why the sudden jump? There's a chronological narrative behind that. My husband fell ill in June 2020, and he was in the hospital um, until he died, more or less, with, with um, one very short break when he died in March 2021. And so what happened was I'm, I consider myself a naturalist poet. I mean, I'm often writing about nature. So I, I was able to experience every season from the time he fell ill to the time he died. And when I wrote Penelope Waits, there was a, a medical emergency, a crisis that happened. And that was in early November 2020. And then it began to snow in early December. So there was a month between that first poem, Penelope Waits, and the second one, First Snow. 
so we had come out of that crisis. There were more to follow. But at that moment, when I wrote First Snow, there was this moment of relief. You'll hear more about that, some of the other poems. And of course, the whole development of, of those nine months, there were ups and downs. There were moments of hope and there were moments of despair. So I think that's what was going on there. I see. And I take the, the verse, my boots are too big, too small, too wide, too narrow. The treads are different from the others to be a sort of guilt for not maybe grieving properly. Am I, am I reading that correctly? No, I mean, of course, you're free to read it as you like. Sure. <laughs> I, I have no control over inter interpretations. Um, and that's part of the beauty of, of um, being a writer and being a reader. I think that's the dialogue that can happen. Um, but in this case, um, I think that this is an oblique reference to my uh, role as and, and my self understanding as a writer in that you know, all of my grief, all of my experiences are filtered also through this being a creative spirit, a, a writer, somebody who um, uses the, the ingredients of life, um, the compost of experience to um, tell my narrative, to tell my story. So it, the, of course, it's, it's always true in my poetry, the, the literal level is always um, quite simple and quite direct. But I like to think that on, on a deeper level, there are many meanings to what I'm writing. Um, so I, I would hope that my poems could be read several times and each time with a kind of different um, approach, a different perspective. And in this case, the, the footprints refer to the tradition of poets that have come before me, all attempting to express their pain, this universal experience, this universal pain, of loss, of losing some someone that uh, we have loved. Um, so, so it's kind of saying, yes, other people have gone through this, this path, have, have gone down this path, um, but of course my unique way of dealing with it is going to be a reflection of who I am and, and what I've lived. Um, so, and it's, and it's of course a passing phenomenon. Um, I will leave my own tracks, but they will have disappeared by tomorrow. And there's comfort in knowing on a, on a yet deeper level, um, I will always be a part of nature, down, down to my biology. Um, and when I'm, my physical body is gone, um, I will still have lived. So there will be molecules of ideas, atoms of phrases and words that I have spoken or written and that will remain, and then they will dissolve into the great ohm <laughs> um, of, of nature, the natural world. Mm, yeah, that's, I love that, that philosophy regarding impermanence. It's, it's comforting and, and bleak in a way, but a, a comforting bleakness. It, it's a, a kind of acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, I want to say an almost uh, humility in the face of the laws of nature, which we can never be greater than or um, control, but on the contrary, we, we must subsume ourselves to, because we are a part of nature. Mm, leaning into the impermanence. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, would you read for us solace? I will, thank you. Solace, even in the darkest nights, the stars, where you are or aren't, how could you leave the earth like this, like this, leaving me to this dilapidated world? And what I wouldn't give for another thousand mornings, sharing toast with salted butter, two fried eggs. Hold on, I tell myself, hold on. The part of you that was most true has not gone, but stays with me, even in my darkest nights. I look to the stars where you are. This poem highlights pretty clearly a desire for the mundane and, and everyday moments of life. And I was wondering, do you find that those are the times you miss most with your husband? Gosh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I sort of miss him all the time. Um, you know, not enough time has has passed really to to pinpoint it. Really, anything can trigger that missing. And I have to say that one of the difficulties of the last year and a half has been coping with the trauma. So I'm I'm also dealing with a fair amount of post traumatic syndrome um, on top of everything else because I also had cancer during the time that he was in the hospital. I had a tumor removed. Everything's fine now. I'm presuming that it's going to stay that way. Um, so there's a kind of push and pull between wanting to return to some, something akin to normal and knowing this can never be that I have to reinvent my daily life. I have to reinvent myself. I have to reinvent my vision of what my immediate future and my further future will be. Oh, I see. Thank you. Now, let's move on to Consolations. Consolations. Dear Sorrow, you will not be ignored. Like love, you need no definition. Still, the poet's work is naming things. Like the song line finds the dreamer, or the gesture the dancer, you find me, weaver of words for the ineffable. Reluctant acolyte, I heed you, attending your ubiquity, as I do the subtle consolations of my daily forest walks, blooming lunaria, woodruff, spurge, and vetch, the mayflower, and forget-me-not. In that poem, we see that sorrow itself is being addressed. I was wondering what was your writing process behind that choice? I recall that I was reading, and I, I continue to do that on my night table. I have um, a copy of the selected poems of Mary Oliver. Um, and of course, she's become very, very popular. But in fact, I have been reading her since I stumbled across her in the early 80s. And I think that I may have read a poem, and I can't tell you what the name of it is, where she addresses sorrow. And I use that 
to enter into this poem because of course that is the work that I'm doing now. I am attending to my sorrows. I'm trying to grasp them. I'm trying to, to pay attention. Um, I'm trying to learn from them. I'm trying to cope. So it seemed to me that sorrow was this thing outside of myself that has completely infiltrated, completely invaded my spirit. And I must, I must look at that. I see. And I wonder, due to the widespread nature of sorrow uh, globally these days, would you mind sharing your preferred methods of processing that sorrow aside from poetry? Yes, I can share that with you um, quite easily, and it's something that anybody can do. Um, I began taking daily walks um, already in March 2020 when the lockdown started and it was clear that we would be confined in many ways. I just, I've always been a walker, but the daily walk uh, became uh, something that I consider part of my quotidian routine, along with writing my, my journals, my daily journals. Um, and what has become very popular in Germany, at least, is what we call forest bathing, Waldbaden, a lovely word. Um, and uh, it has gained popularity also through the whole concept of mindfulness. Um, the idea being that the forest is a healing place. And since I'm a, a naturalist poet anyway, and have been going to the into the forest for many, many years, it was only natural. In fact, I didn't even think much about it, that I incorporate this routine into my daily life. I was walking off the, the, the agony. I was walking off the, the anxiety, the fear. Um, every walk was a little bit like a prayer. And I, I gave myself the, um, the homework, so to speak, of um, walking with all of my senses turned on. So paying conscious attention to what is it that I'm hearing? What is it that I'm smelling? What is it that I'm tasting? And of course, what is it that I'm seeing? Um, and that's nothing new, but uh, I, and I have always observed um, the succession of plants that grow in the forest. We, I live in a very beautiful area in Southern Germany on the so-called Swabian Alp, which is a high plateau. And um, we have a special uh, climate here with um, some very interesting uh, plants and flowers and insects and animals. Um, and so it's always been this kind of thing for me to be able to name the trees, to be able to name the blossoms, the flowers, the insects, the butterflies, etc. And of course, that's also part of being a writer, part of being a poet, because we, we want to know the names of things. We're trying to name things. So when I, when I mention these, these flowers, the lunaria, the woodruff, the spurge, the vetch, the mayflower, and the forget-me-not, of course, I'm, I'm also describing a chronological pr procession of plants in the, the order that they blossom. I hope I'm not telling nonsense right now because um, I have to, I would have to double check the translations. I've translated the, the German plants into English and, uh, um, but those are the plants that, that I observe in the spring. Um, 
yeah, course, they, I, I recognize many of those names and I assume the ones I don't are simply flowers that aren't native in my area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and of course the last, the last um, flower is the forget-me-not. That's of course a deliberate um, kind of double, mm-hmm. double entendre that's going on there. The consolation is I'm, I'm in doing these walks in, in being conscious of how I feel and what I, what I experience on a sensory basis, I'm also remembering, I am not forgetting this love. So that is the consolation. Beautiful, once again. Now, our final poem for today uh, is Heart Sore. Would you mind reading it for us? Heart Sore. I'm still here, waiting stacking words like firewood against the coming cold. Beautiful. Now, what is your favorite part about this final poem? Um, well, there's, uh, there's actually a story about this um, because the original version um, is a, a double haiku. This is almost a perfect haiku, not quite, in German. Um, and it goes in a slightly different direction. But of course, you probably know that it's very difficult to, to make a good translation of a poem. And I'm constantly um, sort of writing in both languages and I'm, I'm um, attempting translations and sometimes it just doesn't work and you have to sort of start over, but with a notion um, that is the same as the original notion. I like to say my poems are born in one language and then they go through um, a process of, um, I, I test how strong is, is the poem in the original by translating it into another language. So if I write it in English, I like to translate it into German. And then I see, okay, where are the soft spots? Where is it not strong? Where is it kind of frayed at the edge? Where is it not clear? A little bit foggy. Um, where is it not sharp enough? Um, so, uh, of course, what I, I love haikus. I've always adored this, this very short form. And um, so I, I like the fact that it's very compact, very, very um, specific. And it also talks about this, of course, the reader the regular reader won't know this, reading just the English version. Um, my husband was a, a great, uh, let me start over. He's got a, he, he had a, the, the firewood making, firewood chopping gene. <laughs> Many men have it. It's not a gene that women have apparently. And um, so making firewood, chopping wood was, was always this big ritual and routine that he picked up from his family and his grandparents' family and um, all of his relatives um, always, they, they owned little patches of forest. And so you would make, you would chop down trees and um, then you would chop them, uh, the, the trees down into log sizes and then they would be dried and then you chop them down further. So it's a very long process that takes about three years to get the right kind of firewood. And um, I, I always marveled at the methodical, hardworking um, effort that my husband went 
into or that my husband um, he would exert himself for many hours, many days um, every year to keep us warm in the winter. And there was this sense of looking out for his family in the future, taking care of us, um, for which I had no equivalent. And I, I realized uh, that the thing that I have to console me, to keep me warm, to keep, keep my readers warm, maybe give them comfort and consolation is my words. Um, so I was thinking that's exactly what I do. I, I'm stacking words, uh, making poems uh, for the coming cold. Um, A different sort of warmth you're providing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a, a warmth. Uh, it's like um, the soul's nourishment, the soul's warmth, mm. the spirit's warmth, um, a kind of verbal embrace. Uh, yeah. Well, mm. I'm running out of firewood. It's been pretty cold so far here. <laughs> oh. Gabrielle, thank you again so much for joining us today. And I wonder before we go, could you tell the listeners where they can find your poetry for purchase? Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, you can write me at um, gabi.glang at gmail.com. Write an email. That's probably the easiest. I have a website at gabriellglang.de written together. And you'll see a selection of my books and writings uh, that can be purchased. I have both um, English language and German language books. Um, so if, if any of you are interested in, in the German language books, just write me because my, my uh, German uh, publisher is defunct now. He has um, changed colors. He's, he's now somewhere else and his own publishing house is no longer functioning. Yes, and I guess um, keep a lookout for the Catena Poetica from Finishing Line Press, which is the, the new linked verse uh, anthology that includes four international poets, Joyce Brinkman, you mentioned already earlier, Carolyn Kreider-Ferranda, uh, Flor Aguilera from Mexico, and myself from Germany. Um, so we're hoping that the book will be released at the end of January. Reading us out from today's episode, Gabrielle will be performing Heartsore in its German variant. Holz machen. Du hackst und schichtest, Scheit um Scheit. Ich schichte Sätze, Wort an Wort. Gegen die Kälte kommender Winter. Time to pause for a natural moment with a bit of poetry focusing on our non-human world. Today's natural moment poem comes from Ilicio Zanelli. Seated on a rock, in front the mountain rises. Days of old, 
This program would not have been possible without the help of our creators and creatives. Our signature music is composed and performed by Iona Wagner. Generous supporters of Off the Bricks include the Arts Council of Indianapolis, the Lilly Endowment, and Indiana Humanities. We release new episodes of Off the Bricks on the third Thursday of each month, so keep an ear out for us. Thank you for joining us, poets and poetry lovers. Good poetry enriches our day and enlightens us about ourselves and the world. Join us again the third Thursday of the month as we bring you poetry off the bricks.